kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Ticket to Heaven, released October 9th, 1981. It was written by Anne Cameron and Ralph L. Thomas, adapted from a novel by Josh Freed, directed by Ralph L. Thomas, and released by United Artists. Josh Freed based his novel, Moonwebs, on his real-life experience breaking a friend out of Reverend Sun Myung Moon's Unification Church. Reverend Moon was a Korean religious leader and supporter of conservative politicians. Most recently, the Unification Church made headlines after the assassination of Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The assassin, Tetsuya Yamagami, blamed Abe for the popularity of the Unification Church in Japan. The church had convinced Yamagami's mother to make a donation equivalent to $720,000, plunging his family into bankruptcy and driving his father and brother to suicide. The assassin's first target was actually the living widow of Reverend Moon, but he switched to the prime minister when he found the church's new leader was much harder to get to. In its home country of Canada, this film was nominated for a whopping 14 genies, including wins for Best Picture, Actor, Supporting Actor, and Editing. What? Yeah. The other nominations were for Director, Score, Sound, Sound Editing, Foreign Actor, Foreign Actress, A Second Supporting Actor, Lead Actress, Supporting Actress, and Adapted Screenplay. Hold on, hold on. Okay. <laughs> just, just trying to process this. Genies are what? <laughs> Oscars, Canadian Oscars. Canadian Oscars. Oh, the Razzies? The, the Canadian Razzies. No, guess. no, Oscars. Okay, they're like the Canadian, okay, but are they only for Canadian films? Yeah. Okay. Why is it foreign actress? Because it had an American in it. So even though it's, okay, so it's only Canadian films are eligible for genies, but if the cast isn't from Canada, even though it's a Canadian movie, it's a foreign actress. Correct. Yeah. Okay. We don't have that category here or an equivalent. Interesting. That's. It feels like a weird distinction. Well, the only reason that that distinction is made, I think, is because in Canada, the financing is dependent on how much of the cast are Canadian, where that's not as big a deal here in America. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but I feel like it's kind of a shitty thing to say that. I wonder if they still do it. You're in a Canadian movie, but you're not from here, so you get your own category. Pretty good acting for a foreigner. (laughs) (laughs) You have to sit away from everybody else at a different table, though. (laughs) You smell like cheeseburgers and french fries. (laughs) Don't smell like poutine at all. We start with an angelic chorus singing over a shot of a van crossing the Golden Gate Bridge. In the back, we hear voices chanting together. An ominous sustaining violin note overtakes the chorus. We see the van's passengers are reciting a practiced call-and-response session with a voice on tape blaring out of the van's speakers. One of the disciples in the van tallies up all of the money their church has brought in on this trip. $2,563 for Father. Another follower, David, 
has fallen asleep from being overworked collecting the cash, and Patrick cracks his knuckles over David's head and reminds him that the less sleep he gets, the stronger he'll be. I am living proof that this is not true because I get three to four hours a night and I am weak as shit. <laughs> I think that's the, that's the point. You're so sus- oh, yeah. You're so susceptible to a cult. In fact, maybe vintage video is a cult and it's got you. No, father wouldn't do that to us. <laughs> <laughs> they start more chanting. Smash out Satan. Louder. Bring in the money. Stay awake. Smash, Smash out, out Satan. Satan. Bring, Bring in, in the, the money. money. Stay, Stay awake. awake. Smash out Satan. Satan. We cut to the interior of Yuck Yuck's Comedy Club in Toronto three months earlier. Saul Rubinek, as Larry, takes the stage dressed as a flying nun. He makes some jokes about someone in the audience being big enough to eat a car. He gets annoyed when a guy in the audience doesn't laugh at his jokes and eventually tears off the nun's outfit to reveal a carrot costume beneath it and the guy finally breaks. After the show, we revealed that this is his friend, David. Best friends are supposed to laugh, okay? Even when I stink up the joint, which I didn't tonight. David tells his friend that his girlfriend, Sarah, is leaving him. I, re- I really, there was a joke missing there that was like, come on, man, you were a plant. Like, no, I wasn't. You were. <laughs> oh, did he say that? No, he didn't. He should have. <laughs> yeah. David tells his friend that his girlfriend, Sarah, is leaving him. He mentions a plan to drive out to California to relax for a bit. Larry warns him against trying to fix things with Sarah because they're a mess together. David can't even make it through the night without trying to call her. We cut to his plane landing in California, and a girl tries to talk to him about a religious group, but he waves her off in search of the friends here picking him up. He's driven up to a house in the hills where he's greeted by a chipper girl in all white named Ruthie, played by Kim Cattrall. Later, we see David and Ruthie sitting together at a crowded orientation. She calls the organization a sort of co-op slash community center. In seven years, they've managed 100% self-sufficiency. They watch a woman play How Many Roads on a guitar, but right when the performance ends, David's friend who drove him here pretends he was called at random to attend a nearby campground of their group. He asks David if he wouldn't mind coming along, and David eventually agrees after the coercion of several more young female members beg him to come along. We cut to My Idea of Hell, a bus full of adults singing campground songs as they drive down a dark country road toward their camp in the woods. Ruthie sits beside David as they sing, and he tries to put an arm around her, but she recoils and moves on to the next passenger, suggesting she knows her place as a honeypot in this crew. When they reach their destination, they all go to sleep on a concrete floor of an empty building, and they're awoken in the morning by a team of guitarists singing songs about getting up early. David tries to leave to take a piss, and a guy follows him out to the toilets to see how he feels about the place. When they're done, Ruthie coaches a bizarre exercise routine. Everyone joins hands in a line and then runs around chanting for a while. They lay down in a circle with all their bare feet intermingling because they don't take athletes' foot seriously here. True. Other nightmare. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pretty gross. It's like ringworms, like central here. Look, we're making a ring of worms. And it's also probably like a shared shower situation. Like yeah. there's got to be all sorts of things going around here. Ruthie asks everyone to share some facts about themselves. One member, Greg shares that he worked in the financial world, but he was so disgusted by it that he needed to get away. Later, David sits in the audience of a lecture about the ideals of their community, which they've dubbed Liberty City. The man talks his nonsense at the front of the room, and the followers force laughter at the weird mouth sounds he sprinkles into his speech. He's like a Dane Cook. He's just like, (laughs) what I'm saying doesn't make any sense, but I said it in a funny way. Mm -hmm. That afternoon, David breaks away from the crowd to sort of catch his breath, 
but everywhere he goes he's followed by another member. He finally tells the guy off, but right on cue, a pair of girls wander up to take his place, claiming they've been desperate to meet him. They drag him to another TED Talk about how brainwashed everyone else is, and David starts stroking his fingers along the hand of the girl to his right until she pulls it away on the verge of tears. David touches base with Carl, the friend who dragged him here, and wants to know what this is really about. I'm trying to lend some real respect for women. <laughs> he asks Carl when they can leave, and Carl repeats Monday at the earliest. At the next group meeting, David is finally forced to share about himself, and then we cut to Ruthie leading a chant about bombing people with love, a common tactic cults use on members trying to withdraw from the group. Like the concept of bombing with love isn't just shouting the words bomb with love no at that's someone. it that's exactly how it works <laughs> well maybe it is <laughs> david is chanting along with them and he seems more moved by the speeches today around a campfire a woman tells a story of her formerly promiscuous ways and about how good she feels to finally admit it out loud when she finishes the speech two men stand and walk away from the fire circle the next day the entire cult are waddling around like ducks on a farm and then David is put through a gauntlet of singing fast, high-energy songs and then sitting through long, boring Jesus speeches. Back and forth, back and forth. That sounds like grade school. Yeah. Around another campfire, David breaks and shares the story of his grandfather's death. He apologizes for the walls he had to put up and gives in to their love bombs. It's clear that the lack of sleep is having an effect on David, and in the middle of a speech the next day, he stands up and makes a run for it. A whole pack of members chase him out into a field where David finds Carl and begs to leave right this second. It's kind of like the scene in The Island, though, where Michael Caine escapes the pirates and runs to the man who rented him the boat, only to learn that he's in cahoots with the pirates. Carl escorts David back to what he assures him will be the final lesson. We cut forward in time a bit. David's head is now shaved, and they walk with him to a locked phone booth. Ruthie supervises a call to David's friends and family, including his friend Larry the Comedian. The group from the camp all hop in another bus to a new location, and we start with a religious ceremony led by Meg Foster as Ingrid. And I have to admit, if you wanted me to join your cult, you could do worse than Kim Cattrall and Meg Foster for spokespeople. <laughs> At the front of the room are framed photos of an Asian American man and his wife, presumably stand-ins for Reverend Sun Myung Moon and his wife. As they sing together, the camera pans across a super-wide shot of the Golden Gate Bridge again, and we cut to the followers of the church rushing around the city selling handfuls of flowers. To convince a buyer, Patrick tells a man that they're using the money to build a Christian rehab clinic, but David expresses a disappointment in having to lie to get the money. David, it's only Satan's money we're taking, right? Yeah. yeah and but... since Satan cheated to get it, it's our mission to get it back, however we have to. He uses the metaphor of a burning building, and David agrees that he would lie to someone to get them out of a burning building. But you shouldn't have to, right? <laughs> Couldn't you just say it's burning and then they should want to leave? They drive the van later and Patrick hits play on the deck so they can hear the voice of the man they call Father, the leader of their church. Later that night, David is entrusted with driving the van and he passes out at the wheel. He nearly collides headfirst into an 18-wheeler and wakes and swerves at the last second and everybody just laughs, relieved to be alive. The next day, Brother Greg finds David and admits that he thinks there's something weird about this place. David seems concerned to hear this from a friend, but they are quickly interrupted by Ingrid, who splits them up. She brings David upstairs and supervises a phone call with David's family. 
He tells his parents he's working on a school for disturbed children and that everything is fine and maybe they can see him in a few weeks. After the call, David confesses to Ingrid and Patrick that Greg is possessed, aka looking to defect. Ingrid instantly orders up a fresh batch of love bombs. We cut to David sneaking into a burger joint to get some fast food to compete with the all-natural stuff he's fed at the compound. When he catches sight of his own reflection eating it, he's so disgusted that he rushes to the bathroom to vomit and screams into the mirror for Satan to get out of his body. Oh, Satan! Get out, 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 Satan! And the guy running the diner finds him in the bathroom. He's like, are you all right? What's going on here? And he just runs away. Um, he runs through traffic to a phone and calls Yuck Yucks to beg Larry for help, but he's on stage as a dancing tomato and doesn't get to the phone until it's too late. Ingrid and several other church members catch David at the phone and admit that he's been under observation this whole time. Larry finds David's father and begs for his help. We even see Larry ask his boss for time off to go to California and track David down. His boss is the most interesting character. Yeah, yes. I thought that was fascinating, like, the turns they take. Yeah, <laughs> it's, he's just like... Yeah, all right, whatever, go on. Yeah. <laughs> he's just like at, at first he doesn't care, and later he's, he's way more supportive than you'd expect. Yeah. Larry and David are reunited in a restaurant, and David is always accompanied very closely by Ingrid and Patrick, who sit together. Ingrid even chops up David's food for him. When Larry suggests speaking together in private, Ingrid and Patrick rush him out of the room. That night, we see Larry on a bus to the camp. Then we get a quick glimpse of David stealing money from an old woman for the church. He speaks with a woman named Lisa about Larry being a troublemaker as they try to initiate him. He's not their typical target, but David says, if you can get people to laugh at him, he'll be eating out of your hand. Suddenly, a car pulls up and kidnaps David's girlfriend, wife, acquaintance, Lisa. This girl just gets taken. We cut to a meeting of the church and Ingrid warns everyone of the tools of Satan. It turns out Lisa was taken back by her family. Ingrid assures everyone that Lisa knows the right and wrong way to slash your wrists, which I assumed meant that she would kill herself if she weren't released, but we'll learn she means the exact opposite. Larry does some stand-up at the camp, and only one guy is laughing at his set, poking fun at the camp. For whatever reason, Larry turns on his only fan, and finally the rest of the crowd are getting in on the laughter. Lisa makes her way back to the church, and everyone's very happy about it. She shows off the wounds from when she slashed her wrists to escape her parents' custody. She cut across the vein to avoid dying, but to make it a serious enough deal that she would be taken to the hospital so that she could let them know she was being held captive by her parents. Larry seems to be getting sucked into the chants of the churchgoers, but the one guy who laughed at his jokes drags him away from the crowd to remind him that these people are insane and he needs to get the fuck out of here. He tells Larry that the diet they keep people on fucks with their brain processing and keeps you from any critical thinking. Turns out, the guy only joined the group looking for a sister to help her break out, but she's not here. They find a freeway and escape to freedom. Larry tracks down Sarah, David's ex-girlfriend from the start of the film, and enlists her to help win back David from the cult. She's understandably reluctant, but Larry connects all of David's family and friends, and then returns to his boss to ask for another unpaid vacation to break his friend out of the group. Larry's boss asks if it's true that Larry might end up in prison for kidnapping his friend, and he confirms the crime comes with a 14-year sentence. And then his boss is essentially, you son of a bitch, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. Because <laughs> basically, this is taking place in Canada. Right. And mm -hmm. they're from the U.S. Yes. So, to, in theory, it's a, probably a worse sentence to, to go into another country to try to kidnap yeah. somebody. Yeah, you're kid kidnapping a foreign citizen and then yeah. bringing them back. 
Not only does Larry's boss approve the time off, he also comes along for the adventure. They book a pair of hotel rooms in town with adjoining doors and prep the passage for easy opening. David meets his mother at the airport, and Mom convinces David she needs to change at her hotel before she can go to dinner. They bring David and his mother to the neighboring hotel room, and while they're inside, Larry and crew bust through the room and take David by force. In all the jostling, David's mom is thrown backward against a bathroom wall and falls to the floor, but it's such a limp collapse that I worried they just killed her. <laughs> like, it, she looks <laughs> dead when she falls. David fights against the kidnappers, but Ingrid and Patrick are outnumbered. Patrick starts taking pictures of everything to call the police with, and David's parents tell the friends to just leave with their son while they have him. The rescuers roll up to a house in the suburbs, and David refuses to talk to anyone. Left alone in the room, David tries silently to bust open a light fixture in the ceiling. And presumably this is to get a piece of glass to do what Lisa did. Right. Yeah. Larry calls David's parents' room to see how they're doing, and it sounds like they've been arrested for David's kidnapping. If you let me go, we won't press charges. Sometime later, a specialist arrives to try and break David. They point him to David's room and he gets right to work. The first thing he does is speak to David as though he was actually Satan, which seems counterintuitive. When this man arrived at the house, they even admitted that they didn't know what this specialist would look like, so I was worried at first that a church member had snuck in here to sabotage the rescue. Larry tries to communicate to David how insane this whole situation is, but David doesn't give a shit. The specialist suggests a diet of more protein to get his brain function back to normal. The specialist also confronts David with the actual text of the church's beliefs, which he admits he's never read. When David won't take the book from the man, he asks Sarah to give it to him. When he won't take it from Sarah, the man asks David to admit that he thinks Sarah tempted and defiled him. She's devastated by his words and runs from the room, but stays in the house because she still loves David and can't stand to see him this way. The specialist takes a break from deprogramming, but Larry reminds him that time is of the essence and he gets back to work. He asks David what he would do if he were asked to kill on behalf of the church, and when he realizes that he would have no say in his actions, he starts to pound his chest and recite scripture to himself to drive their words from his head. The specialist goes through all of the holdings the church has and explains to David where the money goes that he swindles from people for the Holy Father. It's just a bunch of random businesses. No schools, nothing to help children or provide for the poor or sick. The church's founder even owns a munitions plant, and David is so disturbed by this revelation that he starts shouting at the specialist. David asks, in the absence of his church, who will love him unconditionally, and Larry gestures to everyone else in the room here, just trying to help him and risking their freedom to do it. When the specialist finally admits that he was just as terrified when he escaped the church, something clicks in David's head. It's all so confusing. He starts crying, and Sarah wraps him in her arms, and suddenly everyone here swarms him with hugs. David's parents, love bombs, love, love bombs, bombs, love bombs. <laughs> bomb with love, bomb with love. David's parents arrive and hug him outside the house. He looks across the road at a car, and Patrick, Ingrid, Ruthie, and Lisa are here to retrieve him, but they can see he's broken free of their grasp. We well, end on a sort of ominous freeze frame yeah. of David staring creepily back at the cult members, and with a different score, the implication could just as easily be that he's faking his breakthrough and waiting for an opening to return to the church. Is that not the implication? I don't think so, because the that, music is just uplifting. Uh, mm, I don't know. Yeah. I totally took that to mean that that's exactly what he was doing. Out of here. I, I, I think that it was meant to be uplifting, but it should not have ended on a creepy, like, 
don't worry, guys, I'll be here. What if it was not meant to be uplifting and they decided in post that that was too sad? That sounds mm. more accurate. Yeah. That they're like, so they shot it so that it's like he's definitely going back to the church. And then it tested poorly and everyone's like, oh, wait, nobody wants him to be in the cult. Yeah. That's a shitty ending. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's uh, that's Ticket to Heaven. Best picture of the I year. Mean, to be honest. The idea that they did all that work and he's still going back to the cult, I think, is the better ending. No, I agree. So they kind of ruined it with the uplifting music. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you you got to do something when the people paying for your movie say, hey, change this ending and then you got you got yourself a deal. Still one best picture. That's bonkers. Yeah. I... I I have a lot of mixed feelings about this film because I I get really irrationally upset with people cult in cults yeah. and cult stuff. Um, it's one of the reasons I really couldn't enjoy that movie. It's weird. This is we were said the movie The Mist. Oh, okay. Uh, because it's like they're all trapped in this place, and then this one crazy religious person who everyone's ignoring the whole time suddenly everyone's on her side. I was yeah. Like, Why? What happened? <laughs> um. You know, but and I can't say that I'm like I'm impervious to being like seduced or you know right. if put through these kind of conditions. It's just it's just so infuriating. Like you, because they they have an answer for everything. It's yeah. Like it's like how do you how do you explain what they're doing? Father tells us it's okay. Yeah. Like, it's just like you can't get over it, and it 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 just angers me. And I guess that's what you're supposed to feel. Yeah. But I can't enjoy. I don't enjoy this. I don't enjoy watching this. Yeah. Especially because this church obviously still exists. And <laughs> it's still operating and growing. Um, But yeah, I mean, like, it's a competently made film. And the story makes sense. And the plot, you know, follows logically. I do feel like the pacing is a little bit weird. Because the whole last third of the movie is people just going, Stop! Come on, stop, dude! And then at the end he's like, All right. <laughs> and that's the end of the movie <laughs> and uh it's just it doesn't feel like it builds in a in mm. a specific way it's just kind of like what about this nah what about this nah what about this oh my god you're you guys are right uh, I'm, I'm done the, the simpsons episode did it better yeah exactly but yeah so um it also seems really cheap but i think that yeah. if you're shooting a movie that takes place you know in a hotel room in some like guest room in the suburbs and a farm in the middle of nowhere then it's not going to cost anything to make but it seems very cheap for something that would be even nominated let alone win best picture mm-hmm. well but canadian standards sure <laughs> it's a different price on the back of the book i get it <laughs> canadian money is uh worth more loons the sweet canadian loons Yeah. Um, I think it's probably a thumbs down for me. I don't think this is yeah. worth your time, probably. It's definitely a thumbs down. Yeah, thumbs down. I I would never watch this again. Again, but you said, like you said, it's competently made. It's got a, you know, first, second, third act. Like it, yeah. it, And I like Saul Rubinick. Yeah. He's it, the only face I recognize yeah, in this yeah, movie. Yeah. Oh, well, him and Kim Cattrall, I guess, yeah. and Meg Foster. Um, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a poorly made film. It's just... A story that I don't like, don't care about with characters. It's just like just you know, I don't care. It's not. 
it's not particularly interesting. Like, there, nothing unexpected happens. Guy visits cult. Guy gets sucked into cult. People try to get the guy out of the cult. Like, yeah. you, you just like, that's, yeah. That, that's it's like two exactly people fighting over a guy. And and basically, the the whole game of the movie is observing the guy and trying to decide which team is he siding with right now. Mm-hmm. And that's basically all there is to the yeah, story. It's just, it's just not super interesting. And I feel like there are more interesting things you can do with a cult movie. Yeah, that makes sense. What uh, what do you guys have this uh, letterboxed? I have this. I have this at number 131 out of 142. Okay. Um, it's right by the other religious fanatics, Image of the Beast. It's right below. And right above an eye for an eye. All right. Richard? Uh, I was considering moving it until Jesse mentioned eye for an eye. <laughs> Uh, because I have it right beneath eye for an eye, <laughs> uh, which puts it at number 92 uh, on my list. So below eye for an eye and above dead and buried. When we first started, I had it directly below an eye for an eye, <laughs> but it's moved down two slots actually. So now it's under paternity and above only when I laugh, which puts it in 127 out of how many now? 145. 140, 145? No, 142. 142. I definitely said 142 And when you asked me that. Our writer-director here was Ralph L. Thomas. Later, he directs a few anthology sci-fi pieces for Ray Bradbury Theater and the 80s Twilight Zone. And then the 1995, a young Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court with Michael York, Teresa Russell, and Nick Mancuso from this film as King Arthur. The writer here was Anne Cameron. She played Mrs. Dunn in McCabe and Mrs. Miller and a few other writing credits I didn't recognize. The writer of the novel was Josh Freed. He has mostly writing and directing credits on documentaries I didn't recognize. He appears in this film as a member of the Sharing Group when they're telling stories around the campfire during the day. The music here is from Mickey Erb, who had previously composed Improper Channels, but after this it's mostly documentary scores. The other music credit is for Mary Beth Solomon, who has a lot of the same credits, but also 80 episodes of Schitt's Creek. Cinematographer Richard Leiterman, or Leiterman, also lights Silence of the North later this season, and Motherlode next season. Later, he lights Rad and the It miniseries. The editor here was Ron Wisman, or Wiseman, but spelled W-I-S-M-A-N. Later, he cuts Deadly Eyes and Millennium, the film. Nick Mancuso played David. We saw him last in Death Ship. Later, he appears in Under Siege 1 and 2. Saul Rubinick is Larry. He was also in Death Ship. He's uncredited for providing the voice of Peter in Nothing Personal. He's also W.W. Beauchamp in Unforgiven. In True Romance, he plays film producer Lee Donowitz, the son of Eli Roth's Donnie Donowitz from Inglorious Bastards. Meg Foster played Ingrid. She's kind of a blend of Kirstie Alley and Charlotte Rampling with these piercing blue eyes. She's Holly in They Live. She's Evil Lynn in Masters of the Universe. Hera on Xena and Hercules. We saw her last in Carney, and she was Cagney on the first season of Cagney and Lacey before being fired for being too easily mistaken for a lesbian. That was literally the network's explanation for why she was fired. That doesn't... Like, on the show? Like, her character? They were like, we don't want people to think your character's a lesbian. Bye. Whose fault is that? That would be the writers, right? I don't know. Kim Cattrall played Ruthie. We saw her last in Tribute. She's back next season for Porky's. She's also Gracie Law in Big Trouble in Little China. 
Emmy and Mannequin, Lieutenant Valeris in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, but she's probably best known for being a total Samantha on HBO's Sex and the City. R.H. Thompson played Link Strunk. Link <laughs> Strunk. L-I-N-C-S-T-R-U-N-C. He's back next season as Will Sly in If You Could See What I Hear. We saw him last as Man in Bar in Only When I Laugh. Later this season, he's Omar Norris in Ghost Story. One of his most recent credits was as a janitor in Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Paul Souls played Morley. He was the first actor to ever portray the character of Bruce Banner on a series called The Marvel Superheroes. He was rewarded for the part with a role in The Incredible Hulk with Ed Norton as the guy who owned the restaurant where Bruce Banner was hiding out. Bruce, what can I do to help you? I could use a bed for a few nights. Well, you can have the spare room upstairs. That'd be so great. You didn't mention the the one credit I knew of... of for Guy Boyd? No, of R.H. Thomas, of Link Strunk. What else was Link Strunk in? He's Matthew Cuthbert on Anne with an E. Oh, okay. So he's the, I guess, adopted father of the Anne of Green Gables character in, yeah. that, in that show. And didn't you say he's on multiple Anne of Green Gables well, series? Well, yeah, so when I, when, I, when I looked that up to make sure that it was him, he was on a different one, which was called Road to Avonlea, which is another like spin-off of uh, Anne of Green Gables stories, but not as the same character. Not as the same character. That was in like 1990 that he was on that show, and oh, he's okay. on Anne with me now. Oh. so he's kind of like Paul Souls here, who gets to play Bruce Banner once and then come back and play him in a different iteration on something else. It's not not the same, but it's kind of the same. Paul Souls also voiced Hermie in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas Special, as well as Spider-Man and Hawkeye in different animated series. More recently, he played Santa Claus on something called Wish Fart. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Harvey Atkin played Mr. Stone. He's Morty in Meatballs. He's Ronald Coleman in 99 Cagney and Lacey's. He was King Koopa on the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, The Adventures of Super Mario Brothers 3, and Super Mario World. We've seen him so far in Atlantic City and Improper Channels, both shot in lovely Canada. He's the guy delivering sandwiches from Floyd's Deli in The Stupids. <laughs> I think you mean the Lloyd. <laughs> but you're surprised to see me. We certainly are. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Joy played Patrick. He was Susan Sarandon's ex-husband in Atlantic City last season. He's back as Henry Thaw in Ragtime later this season, and later back in Amityville 3D, Desperately Seeking Susan, Millennium, and Waterworld as Ledger Guy. Oh, yeah. The Ledger Guy. I know Ledger Guy. He's keeping track. Stephen Markle played Carl. He was Flynn in Invasion USA. Timothy Weber is Greg. He's Moe in Terror Train. Michael Zelnicker played Danny. We've seen him now as Pete Crenshaw in Hogwild and Greg in Pickup Summer, which was written by another Zelnicker, Richard Zelnicker, presumably this guy's brother. Angelo Rosakos played Paul. We saw him last as Bean in Hogwild. Cindy Gerling played Buffy. She was Wendy in Meatballs and Linda Steiner in The Kidnapping of the President. Gina Dick played Sandy. She was Linda McAllister in Middle-Aged Crazy last season, and this season we saw her as Gretchen in My Bloody Valentine and Ingrid the Waitress in Happy Birthday to Me. Chris Britton played Simon. He was Chamberlain Locke on Netflix's Lock and Key and Judge Britton on Riverdale. He also voices Star Swirl the Bearded on My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, and he voiced Mr. Sinister on the 90s X-Men series. 
Candace O'Connor played Ginny. She was a bank assistant in The Silent Partner. Michael Wincott played Jerry. We saw him last season as Peter in Nothing Personal, whose voice is provided by Saul Rubinick from this film. He's also back later this season as Paul in Obsession. We just saw him off the clock as Juliette Lewis's shitty rock star boyfriend Philo Grant in Strange Days. He's also Top Dollar in The Crow, Elgin in Alien Resurrection, and most recently as cinematographer Antlers Holst in Jordan Peele's Nope. David Maine played Businessman. He was police chief in Improper Channels. And Charles Gray played a musician. We saw him last as a butler in The Mirror Cracked. Earlier, he shows up in multiple Bond films, first as a good guy in You Only Live Twice, and then as Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever. He's also a criminologist in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and he's back in pseudo-sequel Shock Treatment later this season. Those are all the credits I have for this one. Sorry, who is Michael Wincott in this movie? I don't. I don't know. Jerry, Jerry is the character's yeah. name, but I don't. I don't even remember him. He's got a pretty distinct voice. I, I don't. Remember and he, I know him. he had long hair at the time because he had really long hair in Strange Days, but he's bald now. Yeah, I'm just trying to th- think. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember seeing him specifically. He's just one of the cult members. Yeah, he was great in Nope, though. Yeah, he was. His voice is so great. They painted your house. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's everything for Ticket to Heaven. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Watcher in the Woods, which IMDb describes like so. When a family moves into a country home, the young girls experience strange happenings that have a link to an occult event years past. Weird wording. (laughs) Yeah. But accurate. Nice grammar. IMDb. I'm excited because I haven't seen this in a while. There you go. I've never seen it. We leave you now with a trailer for Watcher in the Woods. 30 years ago, something happened in these woods. Something happened in this chapel. Something no one will talk about. It's none of your business. Mr. Keller, please. Where are they? Something happened to a young girl. And it's happening again. I couldn't see myself in the mirror. Something is watching again. Waiting. The watcher in the woods. Sometimes I hear someone whispering in the wind. What do you think happened to Karen? I think she's still out there. Who is the Watcher in the Woods? It's not Karen outside there. Don't you understand? It's someone else. Who or what is watching? John, get away! Betty Davis, Carol Baker, David McCallum, and Lynn Holly Johnson. Watcher in the Woods from Walt Disney Productions. It is not a fairy tale.